Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. Today on the program, Deep Sea Exploration, an interview with local explorer and scientist Linda Snook, plus stories about elephant seals, rescuing marine mammals, and more from my Cabrillo College journalism students. And we have a podcast to which you can subscribe at planetwatchradio.com and or you can just pick up archives of most of our shows there, more than 70 of them by now. And you can support us at patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash planet underscore watch. And finally, we'd like to thank MZ Mike Zwirling for sponsoring this program on local station KSCOAM Santa Cruz. And I'm very pleased to say that um, most of this program is being produced by people in their early 20s. Um, quite often we feature young folks on this show because, after all, they're going to be the ones living on this planet Earth long after the rest of us middle-aged to old folks are gone. And so having them learn about and produce stories about science and the environment has long been a passion of mine, and I know of Joe Jordan's. So today we're going to turn it over to Maya Rodriguez, who, along with our intern Tommy Martin, did an interview with a wonderful local woman scientist, uh, Linda Snook, and she's going to tell you a little bit about that interview before we run it. Thanks, Rachel. So Linda Snook is a marine biologist right here in Santa Cruz. She's retired now, but she worked for over two decades for UC Santa Barbara, monitoring the marine life around old oil platforms off the California coast. And she was kind enough to have Tommy and I interview her about her work. So here's the interview now. And thank you, Joe, for connecting us. Thing, uh, Tommy uh, is not with us today. He's hanging out with his dad, who's not working on a Sunday. And happy Father's Day to Tommy's dad, Tommy. <laughs> today we'll be interviewing local marine biologist Linda Snook. For over 20 years, Linda has dived up to 1,500 feet deep into the water of California's coast to monitor the marine life around old oil platforms. Welcome, Linda. It's great to have you. A pleasure to speak with you. How did you first get interested in marine biology? Oh, okay. Well, I was taking some courses in junior college. I had a few years between high school and going back to take classes at junior college, and I had this botany teacher who was wonderful. Back in my day, they didn't necessarily teach you scientific method at age six. They... <laughs> And so I, he introduced me to the scientific method, the, the idea of making observations, posing questions based on those observations, and then developing a testable hypothesis. And I was just excited about the fact that you could actually find out some of the answers to these questions. And he also took me to the intertidal zone in California, and I grew up in Tennessee, so I had never seen such a place as the really diverse, abundant life in the uh, California tide pools. Mm -hmm. So that's where I got interested in uh, marine biology. And I had a botany teacher in that same school, Contra Costa College over in Richmond, mm -hmm. that um, did similar classes and um, inspired me. Cool. And so then you went to school at UCSC? Yes. Then I went from junior college to junior and senior year at UCSC. And I took a field course, a um, quarter up at Bodega Marine Lab during my years at UCSC. And that was really great in preparing me for my uh, future job. Cool. So I think we want to talk about these dives that we keep hearing about. So First off, though, how did you get involved and how did you realize you wanted to go start doing these dives? Because to me, it sounds kind of scary. <laughs> oh, well, I had already been scuba diving for many years during... Let's see, before I started UCSC, I learned how to scuba dive. And I um, had been doing some fish surveys while I was out at San Nicolas Island um, on scuba. And then there was a woman at Moss Landing Marine Lab who actually worked for National Marine Fisheries Service, but she had an office at the Marine Lab. And she was looking for someone to help her process these videos they had been collecting from the Delta Submersible. And I was fascinated with that and... Um, and I had some experience surveying fish underwater, so she hired me. And um, there was no doubt in my mind from the beginning I wanted to go in the submarine. As soon as she gave me the opportunity, I, I took her up on it. So these, they're two-person submarines. Could you describe what it's like being in those? 
Okay, so the Delta submarine, it's kind of a cigar-shaped submarine with a conning tower added on top, and it's bright yellow. It's shaped similarly to the classic Beatles yellow submarine. <laughs> and uh, the pilot sits on a chair or a stool, really, that puts his or her head up into the conning tower, and then the biologist is down in the bottom. So I sit crouched a little bit, but some people lay down. There's a mat down there. So it's really just a two-person-sized submarine. Wow. And how long are these dives typically? Um, usually at least an hour, and I think three hours is about the longest I've done. Yeah, that sounds scary to me. <laughs> You'll probably get a little uncomfortable eventually, too. Yeah, the whole thing's about the size of maybe a telephone booth. <laughs> and so, yeah, three hours is, is plenty long enough. <laughs> the first few times you dived in those submarines, was it hard to get used to? It was very exciting. I I was more concerned about not identifying a fish correctly <laughs> and, and, uh, than anything else, really. So, no, it was very exciting, and I was always very comfortable. It's, it's a little bit cool, but not cold. You're under normal pressure. Um, it's... I was very happy there. They teach you all the safety procedures. There's many, many layers of safety. They have a perfect safety record. There are lots of ways to get yourself out of all sorts of situations. I know how to bring the submarine up by myself if I need to. You could stay down there three days if you had to and wait for the Navy to come get you. Wow. Luckily, that's never happened. <laughs> yeah, really claustrophobic <laughs> by the end of that. Yeah. <laughs> cool. um, so you worked for years monitoring old oil platforms and the marine life around that. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience working around those oil rigs? Right. Well, many of these oil platforms have been in place for 20, 30 years, and so they've become well-established uh, artificial reefs. So, And they're still functioning. They're still functioning platforms at this point. And oh. so on the top, it's noisy and smelly and, and um, uh, well, ugly, I guess you could <laughs> say, if you look at an oil platform. But once you go underwater and look at the platform, they're covered with mussels and anemones and all kinds of animals. All invertebrates, and then there are fish swimming all around them. So they're um, a well-established artificial reef. And my job, the job of my lab, was to find out what is the ecological role that those oil platforms play in the life history of fish, fishes in Southern California by... Because that was something we didn't consider when we first put those oil platforms up, I'm guessing. We just kind of said, we need the oil, let's go for it. Right, and um, initially, until uh, during Schwarzenegger's era, initially the law said that the well had to be capped at the end of the oil well's production. The well had to be capped and the entire structure was going to be removed. All the mussel shells that have been dislodged from the top and created a habitat around the bottom, all those would be scraped away. The entire structure would be removed. Um, during Schwarzenegger's time, uh, a bill was passed such that on a rig-by-rig -rig basis, each rig will be considered. They'll look at its, the role that it plays, what sort of navigational hazard it would be, um, all sorts of factors, including the data that we generated, will be taken into consideration. They'll decide whether to either cap the well and leave the whole platform there, cap the well and take away part of the platform, topple it has been talked about or just remove the whole thing. Every rig will be considered I guess in a court of law and I'm sure there'll be lots of opinions about that at the time. How old are the most of those rigs out there in the California coast? Well, two, 20, 30 years old I believe. Okay. So in some cases depending on the marine life around it, it would be less disturbing just to leave those bottom structures there. That's correct because uh, they provide habitat and it's a well-established reef. There are big fish that use the bottom of the platform and uh, underneath just the physical structure itself, I don't see any negative impact, although I'm not a proponent of putting anything artificial down because it's such a complex system, you don't know what's going to happen. And like I said, one rig, one place, and one, one rig very close to it, with different things living on it. So we... We don't know. When we introduce something into a system, we really don't know what it's going to do. It's just too complex to be able to predict that.
Especially when we haven't done studies when we were first putting them in. Right, <laughs> right. Baseline studies, exactly. Now, we've been doing these studies since 1995. It's a long-term study that we've looked at. But when we started, they were already, they were already established. Hmm. And you also did some work um, establishing protected areas in the Monterey Bay? Uh, yes, I did some work for National Marine Fisheries Service, and they were looking at the best places to put in the marine protected areas, and in order to do that, they needed to know what fish need what kind of habitats. So there are many species of, of uh, rockfish and other benthic fish, such as lingcod and halibut, and they all seem to have differences in habitat preference. So we were looking at habitat prefer preference of all the different species so that... Uh, a diversity of habitats could be protected so that a diversity of species could be protected. Hmm. Maybe then, some of the oil platforms need to be protected so we can keep those habitats. <laughs> <laughs> well, fortunately, there have been large areas in Southern California, not oil platforms, in Southern California and up here that have been now protected uh, and no one can fish there. Um, the platforms are kind of a natural protection is difficult to fish around a platform you're likely to get if you go hook and line fishing you're likely to get your things uh, snagged in the rig itself mm -hmm. so those kind of protected themselves and that's why those there there's a high abundance and diversity i think of fishes on those platforms is because people couldn't fish there well, so, some benefits now if you took off the top of the platform and marked it and said okay this is here, but it's no longer an oil platform. It's possible that a little bit more fishing could happen, but there would still be that entanglement potential, and nobody's going to drag a net over a platform because they would just lose their, lose their net. Right. Mm -hmm. What other kind of artificial, like unintentional artificial reefs exist out there right now? Um, intentional, unintentional or unintentional? Oh, well, sunken ships are really the... I mean, I think there's aircraft carrier just below on the southern end of the Monterey Bay Sanctuary. Oh, wow. um, there are big boats, submarines, things like that from wars, uh, really old ones, and they become artificial reefs. Have you seen any of those in your dives? We came across a sailboat one time, and uh, although the biologists take turns going on, on each of the dives, I look at all the video. After after all the dives are done, we're narrating a, a videotape from inside the sub calling out species of fishes. I bring all the videotapes home. So I don't believe I went on that particular dive, but I did watch the video because I'm the person who enters the, the data into the computer. So you get to see it no matter what. <laughs> right, many times. <laughs> so I'll go through and enter all the fish information, and that involves a lot of pausing and rewinding because any fish we didn't see from the submarine... I'm counting on the video. And then I'm entering habitat information. That's another pass through the video. And then I'm integrating all that with navigational information and uh, salinity, temperature, things like that. When you say counting fish and you're watching it through the submarine and a fish goes by and you count that one fish, how do you know that you haven't already counted that fish before? Well, you can kind of see all around. You can watch what the fish are doing, mm -hmm. and um, we're moving along slowly. So shall I tell you how I do a, a transect, a survey? Yes, so we're moving along the ocean floor, whether it's an oil platform or, or just natural rocky bottom, and there's a set of, of uh, a pair of lasers pointing out into the water that help us size a fish. They're 20 centimeters apart, and they're parallel laser beams. Mm -hmm. And those also help me judge the distance out from the submarine. So everything within two, excuse me, two meters of the submarine, I'm counting along the bottom. And so the submarine, the driver is driving slowly, like about a half knot along. And so I'm counting everything I see, either swim through or just sitting in that swath. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of tell. And, and the pilot also helped me saying, okay, this school's going to circle back through. So I would have some reference. And all that would be recorded on the videotape. The, all the voices of mine and the pilots would be recorded on the videotape. So that helps me count later. Because right, you guys are pretty close together. And the fish don't tend to react very much to the submarine. Really? No. Oh. The, the 
kind of fish that we're counting, the benthic, mm -hmm. rockfish, lingcod, things like that, they pretty much just sit there. The small fish are <laughs> swimming around. Mm -hmm. But because we're moving along... Um, yeah, half knot, they, they're like, oh, you're going so slow, we can come right up to you. <laughs> right, right, right. If they wanted to just keep circling, they could. Right. So I keep an eye out for that is the reality. I, I can see a lot more than what the video sees. And so I would call out, okay, these fish have already been counted. I would say that on the video, and then I would know when I brought the video home, entered the data. Okay. Well, it seems like a difficult task. Was it hard to get like that down? Were you kind of afraid when you first did one of those dives? Um, the hardest part is identifying the fish. There are, uh, I think, maybe 35 different species of rockfish along this coastline, and many of them look very, very similar. So that takes a lot of practice, getting mm -hmm. to be able to identify the fish, and you want to be able to identify them instantly. So you have to know what characters to look for. Mm -hmm. And it might just be a certain anal fin spine is longer than another <laughs> fin. So you, you're hoping to get a good view of every fish and identify to the lowest uh, taxon possible every fish that you see. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, counting is intimidating if there are a lot of fish. Yeah. Um, but the identification, the quick identification, and sometimes they're mixed schools. So you have to say, okay, these are 30% half-banded rockfish and 40% square spot and the other 10%, you know, this or that. And mm. it takes some practice. I use, if there are lots and lots of fish, I use a method that birders use called the cloud counting. And you count a cloud of, say, 10, and then you count a cloud of 50, and then you multiply that sort of visually in your mind. Mm. Yeah. It does take a certain amount of visual, spatial skill yeah. <laughs> and practice. Sounds yeah. like it. And I guess it helps to reanalyze all the video data and maybe go over it with other of your colleagues or something. Yeah, absolutely. If there are doubt, doubts about identification, I will refer that to someone else and, and we'll discuss it. Lots of talks on the ship because we get the video back right after the dive. We if there's a species that was questionable, we all talk about it. So multiple experts talking together about the fish. During the dive throughout your entire career, what do you think the most exciting mm. moment was for you? Oh, gosh, yeah. There, you know, I get really excited about seeing fish that have very rarely been seen. There was one rock kind of rockfish, obscure kind of rockfish that's not very common and, and they had only collected it in um, some traps and so mm -hmm. I got to see and photograph one of those. Oh, cool. Um, Sebastis Melanosema and then there were uh, Cordell Bank, I was doing some work up there, they were doing some baseline surveys of the marine sanctuary at Cordell Bank and there were giant octopus and they were out mating so they were all just changing color, active and they're really big. They're, wow. Um, I don't know half a meter across or the head part and wow. maybe a little more and and then the legs go out from there there so that was pretty exciting wow and you were actually on that dive it wasn't yes a video? yes yes oh, wow. and i've seen giant black sea bass which are huge they're like as big as the submarine so wow. that was, <laughs> that's exciting too <laughs> wow but many small exciting moments i like taking pictures from the submarine mm -hmm. can't blame you Sounds like a pretty fun job. It is a fun job. I've been lucky to have it all these years. Yeah. That's all the time we have for today. It's been great having you, Linda. Thank you so much. Yeah, You're very you. welcome. For Planet Watch. I'm Tommy Martin. And I'm Maya Rodriguez. Thanks for listening. Okay, thanks and great job, Maya, Tommy, and Linda. Thanks, Linda, for granting us that interview. Uh, Linda has a whole other wonderful, interesting aspect of her life. I'm just going to take half a minute to talk about it here and spring a surprise on our wonderful co-host, Rachel. Uh, Linda's late brother, Doug, was one of the co-founders of the world's first and at that time and maybe still only solar-powered chocolate company. <laughs> Linda knows way more about chocolate and cacao and the whole thing than the average bear or fish. And um, she gave Maya and Tommy a couple of, each a couple of bars of the wonderful dark chocolate of Grenada Chocolate Company. And I brought a couple. I stopped by her place on the way into the show today to bring a saltylicious 
Caribbean sea salt and 71% chocolate bar and an organic dark chocolate 100% cocoa. That's just for baking bar for Rachel. So there you go. Thank you so (laughs) much, Joe. That is beautiful, and I wish I could eat it on the air, but that wouldn't be polite. The packaging is pretty spectacular. So if you go to GrenadaChocolate.com, by the way, there's a little commercial. This is commercial radio after all. GrenadaChocolate.com. That's an island down near Venezuela. Thank you so much. And now um, here's some wonderful programming from my students at Cabrillo College's journalism program. Hi, I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And every semester at Cabrillo College, I teach a course called Writing for the Broadcast Media. This semester, the assignment was to produce a four to five minute radio piece about a science topic that affects people here on the Central Coast where the program is produced, or elsewhere in the country. This first piece is by Brigitte Reardon, who investigated sudden oak death, which is affecting many forests all throughout the northwest part of the United States. Here's her piece from Brigitte Reardon. California's iconic oak trees are being threatened by a pathogen called sudden oak death. This fungus-like disease has wreaked havoc, killing over a million tan oaks along the west coast from Big Sur to Oregon. Scientists at the University of California, Santa Cruz, are trying to learn more about this tree killer so that its march across the state might be slowed. Grigor Andonian is a plant ecologist specializing in plant-soil-microbe interactions and its biological invasion. Basic information about sediment death is that it is a introduced disease that affects many species um, here in California and is spreading, um, but primarily hits a couple oak species, primarily one species, tan oak, and um, been causing massive die-offs of tan oaks in in California, especially in coastal areas where there's lots of water. Sudden oak death poses a major threat to plant and wildlife affecting food resources and changing the way the whole ecosystem functions. Many animals, including deer and squirrel, rely on acorns for food, and when those are drastically reduced, their numbers are as well. Predators such as fox, coyote, bobcat, mountain lions also have less to eat. Forests are expected to have more frequent and intense fires due to rapid buildup of fuels resulting from the trees killed by the sudden oak death. My personal experience is with it is that, you know, you you might be wandering somewhere beautiful and you feel like you're in nature and far away from human impact. And then you see this massive dead tan oak tree. And what that is is a legacy of, of human impact. That that organism that caused that tree to die was introduced by, by people. It's not a native disease. Now, disease is a normal part of ecological interactions in the wilderness and in nature, but this species um, was not, never occurred here. And so it's kind of an interesting example of how this tiny little microorganism, which nobody really cares about or thinks much about, introduced and caused these huge devastating impacts. And um, it is sad to see a big, beautiful oak tree Um, get taken down, especially when these trees are so important in the ecosystem and provide so many species with habitat and food in the form of acorns. Um, So it is tough, but it's also indicative that it's, uh, you know, our world is changing and we're no exception. Um, We just, you know, some of us that spend more time outside get to see these changes happening, but the whole world is changing drastically and this is just one local uh, symptom of that global change that's going on right now. Gregory Gilbert is a plant pathologist with the University of Santa Cruz. His focus is on species interactions and conservation in temperate ecosystems. He says although sudden oak death behaves like a fungus, it isn't one at all. It's not a fungus. It's definitely not a fungus. Um, And it's related to the brown algae it's um, called an oomycete, is the group that it belongs to, and it's a protist. Um, it's in, actually in the same group of organisms as giant kelp. 
but it doesn't photosynthesize. It has to get its nutrition by eating plants. Gregory runs the UC Santa Cruz Forest Ecology Research Plot on campus. We installed that plot, mapping out tens of thousands of trees in 2007, and that was just as sudden oak death was arriving to that part of the forest. And we've watched a dramatic decline in the ten oaks in the forest uh, in the last 10 years. Is there anything that can be done to stop this disease? Unfortunately, it's too late for the Santa Cruz Mountains and the rest of the California coastal forests. But it has been said it may be contained from spreading to other parts of the country. I think it's largely out of our hands. Uh, Containment uh, to keep it from moving out of this region is possible. So I think the quarantine um, efforts that are in place to keep it from spreading to other places around the world, around the country, are important. But in the areas where it is in California, it's pretty well established and it's going through a process of changing the the shape of the forests around here. Um, uh, But it's not going to go away and we're not going to get rid of it. This epidemic questions the future health of our oaks, coastal forests, and interdependent ecosystems that reside. Currently, scientists are doing what they can to understand the disease. But sadly, it's been said that the issue is already out of our hands. The only option for foresters and homeowners is to eradicate already infected trees in hopes to lessen the outbreak. Thank you for listening. This is Brigitte Reardon. Next up, Danny White takes us on a field trip to Anya Nuevo State Reserve, a place that is known for its elephant seals, which roost right on the coastline where tourists can get within 20 feet of their breeding and pupping and all the things they do naturally in the environment. This story is about what you can learn from observing elephant seals and what some of the researchers are learning about these extraordinary creatures that were almost to the brink of extinction, except for seven individuals, they think. After going through this evolutionary bottleneck, what happened to the species? We'll find out next with this piece from Danny White. Elephant seals, an enormous creature with a large nose. The docents and researchers at Onion Nuevo State Park are learning more about these amazing creatures every day. Elephant seals are the deepest marine mammal divers, hold their breasts the longest out of any mammals, and go without food for weeks. I'm Danny White for Planet Watch. As I walked the trail at Onion Nuevo to get to the beach where the elephant seals were, I could start to hear them. It almost sounded like someone revving a motorcycle. After about a mile and a half, I reached my destination. I was hit in the face by salty air and the smell of the ocean. The moment I arrived on the beach, I was greeted by a docent by the name of Ed, as well as a large group of elephant seal pups and mothers. Ed told me that he had been volunteering there for 26 years. I asked him why Año Nuevo was important to elephant seals. Uh, They were brought to as few as uh, 30 to 100 animals that were overlooked. So these are all from that small group. And I take some pride that we, uh, uh, we are we're helped in their recovery. Elephant seals were at the verge of becoming extinct until the Marine Mammal Protection Act halted hunting. Then sanctuaries like Onion Oeval were set up to protect them. Now they are thriving and there are approximately 150,000 of them, which puts elephant seals in the perfect states for researchers to study them. Elephant seals spend 80% of their lives in the ocean but the other 20% is spent mating or molting on the beach. Head elephant seal researcher for UC Santa Cruz, Patrick Robinson, says this is the perfect setting for studying these gigantic creatures. It allows scientists to place tags on their flippers to track them once they go out to sea, which is also referred to as a flipper recite. Uh, What's really neat is that it's a a really great um, study site for marine mammals because we have this amazing flipper tag recite history. So it goes back about 50 years. So compare that to any other marine mammal species, that 50 years of recite data, you can do a lot with that and understand each specific mortality and movement across colonies and all sorts of interesting parameters. Research has been going on here for 50 years. And with that, scientists can study migration patterns throughout the years, as well as monitor births, diets, and the overall number of the population. 
Researchers have found that elephant seals can dive down to 7,835 feet and hold their breath for up to 100 minutes. These creatures are truly amazing. Every aspect of their lives that we study just blow us away. So the depths of their dives, the duration of their dives, how far they're going, all the different physiology that allows those things, um, their, their fasting physiology on land, how they're able to go for months without drinking or eating anything and be completely fine. Patrick explains to me that not only do he and his colleagues gather information about elephant seals themselves, but the elephant seals actually help them with other research done in the ocean. And then, uh, the, the one additional piece to all of that is that with a lot of the uh, instrumented animals, they're collecting oceanographic data for us. So they're not only collecting behavioral data that we're interested in, they're collecting things like salinity and temperature, and in some cases, fluorometry, so to get the chlorophyll content of the water. Elephant seals are able to collect data from the ocean by the tags on their flippers, as well as something called a conductivity, temperature depth, satellite relay data logger, also referred to as CTD, which was developed in the early 2000s to sample temperature and salinity during marine mammal dives. The CTD is attached to the seal on land, then it records hydrographic profiles during its foraging trips, sending the data by satellite whenever the seal goes back to the surface. So we're collecting oceanographic data, information about the ocean, in the exact interesting places where the elephant seals are feeding. In addition to being an incredible animal to research, because of the depths of their dives and their migration patterns, these animals are amazing due to the fact that they help collect data for researchers, which help them study other aspects of the ocean. Elephant seals are truly fascinating creatures. Thanks for listening. I'm Danny White for Planet Watch. That was a piece from Danny White. And next up, Jean Kratzer takes a look at a program that looks to save marine mammals that are stranded, starving, or injured from the coasts of California, rehabilitate them, and send them back out into the wild. She took a visit to the Moss Landing area to look at the Marine Mammal Rescue Program. Here's that story from Jean Kratzer. Each year along the California coast, thousands of marine mammals are found sick, injured, or starving. That's where the California Marine Mammal Stranding Network comes in with eight major centers. The largest of these is in Sausalito. The center is open to the public and admission is free. The Sausalito Center also operates several small hubs, not open to the public. One of these, in Moss Landing, performs rescues in Monterey and Santa Cruz counties. This was a recent rescue. When a Santa Cruz surfer found a stranded animal on a local beach, she called the hotline. A bright red pickup was dispatched with animal carriers, nets, boards, and an experienced team of volunteers. The words Marine Mammal Rescue were emblazoned on the truck along with the hotline 415-289-SEAL. Once on the beach, standing behind boards to protect themselves and to remain out of the animal's view, the volunteers slowly inched the boards forward, coaxing the 30-pound pup into the crate. Once rescued animals reach Moss Landing, they're rehydrated, fed, and rested for a day before being taken to Sausalito. The elephant seal, the harbor seal, and the California sea lion. That's Allie, the current intern in Moss Landing, naming the three most common animals they rescue. In springtime, they're most often pups. Elephant seals, they're only with their mom for a month before the mom kind of kicks them out. And then they don't really know how to find food or they don't know how to eat. They'll end up eating like sand or rock. Then they kind of wind up on a beach or somewhere. A lot of the elephant seals that we have here, they don't even know what a fish is. They actually have to go to fish school. That's Sarah, previously an intern and now training to be a volunteer assistant supervisor. So they go up to Sausalito and someone literally has a fish in front of them and is smacking it with the fish and is like, here you go. <laughs> and they still don't even know that they're supposed to eat it. And then sea lions are a little bit faster. So they'll probably just see a fish and go, oh, this is what I'm supposed to eat. Then there's harbor seal pups. Ali explains that a mother will often leave her pup on the beach while she looks for food. People think they need rescuing. They don't. People don't often know that, so they'll see like a seal pup 
on its own to pick it up or like put it back in the water because they don't know that they're like doing more harm than good. We would just leave the seal alone, kind of watch out for the mom because she's usually nearby. But if it comes to the point where there's people from the public interacting, that's when we intervene and we would pick up that pup. Sarah says a warming ocean makes things worse. Especially for elephant seals who are having a hard time finding fish. The fish dive down deeper to where it's a little bit cooler. That means that small seals, small sea lions have to dive deeper than they're comfortable doing. There are also diseases. There is a toxin from a, an algae called domoic acid. The fish eat the algae, gets into the fish. Sea lions are getting domoic acid because they all they're eating is fish, and it can cause them to have seizures. They can't normally get rid of it on their own because they have to eat fish. Part of helping the animals is not to tame them, to keep them wild so they can be released. We don't talk around them in the pens. Pretty much all their interactions that they have with people are not pleasant. They're getting meds. They're having tubes shoved down their throat. They're being restrained. They don't like it. So already they're forming sort of a negative association with people, which is what we want. And then once they go up to Salcedo, all the fish that they're eating is with people disguised behind big boards so they don't ever see a person handing them food. Hopefully all of that combined just means that they go out to the ocean, they stay away from people. But, explains Ali, sometimes the people get a nice surprise. So each of our animals gets its own name. If members from the public do help us, they can have a way to monitor the animal. For instance, the people that helped today, the person's name was Maria. So we gave the seal the name Maria. She can go on our website and kind of check in on that animal. It's her own name, so it's probably special for her. But as Sarah reminds us, people need to respect beached mammals. It's important to stay at least 50 feet away or more. Keep your, your dogs away from them. There are diseases that can be transferred both to you and your pets. They are a wild animal and they can bite you. They don't want anything to do with you. They're not on the beach to snuggle you. You know, you can always call that number, send us photos of what you're seeing from a distance. No selfies, please, none of that. <laughs> the rescues and especially the release of marine mammals are dramatic, heartwarming and captivate the public. The center's research is less visible, but critical. What is happening to the animals now may foreshadow the impact on humans tomorrow of polluted and degraded oceans. Here's what Maria had to say, that emaciated elephant seal pup just rescued off the beach in Santa Cruz. Here is a groundbreaking story from one of my students, Megan Campos. This is something you probably haven't even thought about or heard about, and the reason's going to be pretty obvious once you hear the piece. It's one of those things people don't discuss. However, it's having a huge impact on our landfills, piling up millions of pounds of waste every year and causing really big problems for municipalities that have to open new landfills in order to deal with the multitude of waste being generated by, you got it, women in their reproductive years. Here's a story from student Megan Campos to tell us more. If you're a person who experiences a period every month, you've probably been asked at some point, pads or tampons? But a question even more important than that, what kind of impact does this have on our environment? With most women experiencing a period beginning at age 12 and ending sometime around age 51, there's a lot of waste generated. Today, we're going to get to the bottom of menstrual waste. This is Megan Campos for Planet Watch. That sound you just heard was noises of the landfill. Approximately 20 billion tampons, pads, and applicators are sent there every year in North America. Because the average woman experiences a period for 40 years of her life, she'll use about 16,800 disposable pads and tampons over those 40 years. When I heard these statistics, I was shocked, and I decided to reach out to one of the larger manufacturers of tampons, which is Tampax. Although I was unable to reach them for an interview, they did reply to me in an email with a generic response about their environmental impact. It stated this, PNG's Feminine Care Division is committed to improving our environmental sustainability 
profile while giving women a choice in how they manage their periods. We constantly strive to reduce the impact of our products on natural resources and solid waste systems worldwide. Our products are designed and manufactured to have as little impact on the environment as possible. That means we carefully choose the materials we use, make wise decisions about the energy we use, and minimize waste. Like many supplies used for personal or medical care, pads cannot be recycled or flush. So we have engineered our products to be compatible with existing solid waste disposal systems. Feminine care plants worldwide have reduced solid waste by 70% since 2010, and 8 of 10 plants are zero waste. Instead of sending waste to landfills, we reuse it for manufacturing or convert it to energy. Although I was impressed with the email that I received from a rep named Carly, there was one problem I had with it. They failed to mention that plastic, which is on every single one of their tampons, takes 450 years to decompose, meaning probably every single applicator that's ever existed is still in a landfill today. While still on the hunt for an answer that satisfied me, I decided to reach out to Rachel Horn of Sustainable Cycles to find out more information about sustainable menstrual products. First, I began by asking her, is there any future for single-use products at all? Absolutely. I think that there is a time and place for single-use menstrual products. Absolutely. She then went on to explain the inequality that exists in women's health information and accessibility. Not everyone has access to the resources like clean water or a consistent bathroom um, that it requires to use reusable products. Our mission isn't to like have everyone switch to a certain particular product. Our message Mm -hmm. is for everyone to have knowledge of all the products and then choose, have informed choice on what they want to use. That said, I think that there's a balance and, you know, folks, folks kind of use disposable products just because they don't know that other things exist. These products that she mentions include menstrual cups, reusable pads and tampons, and sea sponges. When I asked her which one she thought would be the healthiest for the environment, she said this. If, you know, really what what would probably be the most environmentally friendly is for someone just to cut up an old shirt that they have and use that. Rachel and I both agreed that's a bit unrealistic for someone to actually use a t-shirt, but her point was there. It's not just the cotton waste that goes into pads and tampons. It's about the plastic it uses, it's about the packaging it uses, and it's about the fossil fuels that it takes for the transportation. As you can probably tell by now, there is no one clear solution to ending menstrual waste. This being said, next time you get a period, ask yourself, what change can I make to make this better for my home? Archaeology is a field that seems so peaceful. Everyone's out there sifting through pieces of bone and dirt to look for history. But in that field, there's some controversy. And student Elliot Gross looked at one of those controversies over what to do with the remains of people who have gone on before us and how that's going to be handled by archaeologists. Here's Elliot Gross with that story. Do you ever think about what's going to happen to your body after you pass away? Will you be put to rest in a cemetery, offered up to science, or cremated and kept in an urn? What if you and your family were stripped of this basic right and your body was dug up, moved to a research facility, and studied by archaeologists looking to learn more about your culture? In 1990, NAGPRA, which stands for Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, was a federal law passed in order to return certain Native American cultural items to lineal descendants and culturally affiliated Indian tribes. This has created a rift between archaeologists and Native Americans, with one side attempting to procure and respect their ancestors, while the other is doing everything in their power to learn what they can from their findings. With me today is Professor Dustin McKenzie, a professor of anthropology and archaeology here at Cabrillo College. As a young archaeologist who was just getting a start in the field, I was surprised that we had to kind of turn over um, the the site and our study of the past to this to this individual um, who didn't, in my opinion, you know, didn't have any archaeological training. 
When it comes to an archaeological site, it's important to understand what exactly an artifact is, and in this case, what NAGPRA refers to as cultural items. So it's the, it's the human remains specifically and anything that could have been potentially interred with that, you know, interred with that individual, you know, at the time of death, things of personal or religious significance. The split between archaeologists and Native Americans begins and ends with ethics. When NAGPRA was first introduced, the majority of working archaeologists were dumbstruck by it. Many archaeologists equated NAGPRA to, to burning books by being able to prevent archaeologists from studying human remains. You know, you are removing tremendous potential data sets from us, uh, from the archaeological community. However, you know, if you look at it and it kind of resets some of the balance of, of power. The core of the issue lies in the sensitivity, or lack thereof, in terms of the remains. And if you look back at the history of archaeology, we've, you know, we've targeted cemeteries, Native American cemeteries. Uh, one, just because there's so much information in burials and human remains, and also early archaeologists were only really attracted to the sexy artifacts, and that's where you find the good stuff. You know, most of what we find as archaeologists is are broken, used tools and food remains. Many archaeologists to this day still argue the benefits. I feel that it's been beneficial, you know, in the fact that it has brought um, indigenous people to, to the table. It has given them uh, more power um, in these conversations. Uh, and I think it has, you know, helped archaeology, you know, um, conduct itself more morally, more ethically. Uh, there's probably be, you know, a bunch of archaeologists that would argue against that. Whether you see NAGPRA as beneficial or not, change within the archaeological community is evident. I know of a variety of projects or multiple projects that before people go out and start excavating, they'll do remote sensing, including ground penetrating radar, uh, in hopes to be uh, identify the location of graves or individual cemeteries, and if they think they've located those, they'll they'll design their excavations to avoid those areas, to to not to purposefully not to disturb the graves, um, because it does open a huge you know can of worms, both you know ethically as well as as uh, legally. With more communication, more understanding, and more voices being heard, there can only be hope for the future. The relationships between Native people and archaeologists are only getting better. The archaeology of multi-vocality, which, you know, is, it's, it's something that's new. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's patching these kind of tattered relationships of our past. And I, I really do feel that uh, things will be better 20 or 30 years ago, or from now. Things are definitely better than they were 20 or 30 years ago. So I think we're, we're moving in, in the right direction. This has been Elliot Gross with Planet Watch Radio. You've been listening to Science Stories, produced by the students at the Writing for the Broadcast Media class at Cabrillo College in Aptos, California. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman, the professor who taught these students how to do that, and if you'd like to learn how to produce features like this one or short commentaries, promos, news stories, and a lot more, get in touch with us or go online at cabrillo.edu and you'll find out more about how to sign up for the course and what other opportunities there are to get trained in radio production. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman for Planet Watch. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week. Okay, great work, Rachel, and all of your students there. Just got a couple more minutes in the hour here. A very special day coming up this week, Thursday, June 21st uh, in the Americas. Uh, it's going to be the summer solstice, first day of summer in the Northern Hemisphere and first day of winter for our friends in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, the sun will be directly overhead on the Tropic of Cancer momentarily uh, at 307 a.m. Uh, Pacific time and 6.07 a.m. East Coast time. It'll be setting farthest to the north or right of west that evening for the whole year, and it will be rising, if you're up that early, farthest to the north or left of east on that morning. 
Um, there's a an asteroid. The second brightest asteroid, Vesta, is at its brightest in decades this week. And for the next few weeks, you'll be able to see it with the naked eye or binoculars. It's a, Asteroid means like a star. <laughs> it's a big rock in the asteroid belt. Vesta, V-E-S-T-A. And it's uh, extremely reflective, and it's a mystery why it's so much more reflective than the Earth's moon. But anyway... Check Sky and Telescope magazine. You can go to skyandtelescope.com. You can get maps that show you exactly where to look. It's kind of near Saturn, which is in the evening sky near the constellation Sagittarius, just to the east of J brilliant Jupiter, and uh, to the east of Saturn, and this asteroid Vesta will be Mars. Uh, finally, um, tonight, Sunday, uh, the 17th of June, the moon will be kind of near a sort of bright star, and that star will be Regulus, the heart of Leo the lion. Leo is a constellation that's actually very convincing. It's a backwards question mark, and, and Regulus, that star that will be near the moon tonight, is the period of the question mark. And then there's a sort of a right triangle to the left of it. It's a right profile of a lion facing to the right, and the curve of the question mark traces the mane of the lion. So it's, it's kind of like a big sphinx up there in the sky. And, um, well, let's see here. I <laughs> sort of rushed here thinking we only had about one or two more minutes. But I do have one more little item here. By the way, right down the street right now, Tom Noddy, <laughs> the bubble man, internationally famous. He comes here from Santa Cruz. We'll have him on the show sometime. He's performing at the Live Oak Library. But, hey, it's too late for you to make that. But preview of coming attractions, we'll have him in, in the studio here. But here's a little riddle for you. Uh, Oliver Sacks, a famous uh, psychologist, psychiatrist who studied interesting phenomena of the human brain, he came here a couple decades ago and gave a series of fascinating talks. And he wrote a book, one of his many books was called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. And he told the story, which is memorialized in the movie Rain Man, which stars, you know, Dustin Hoffman as, as the, one of the, these people with strange mental skills. And these two twins, this is a true story, they were experts with numbers. And somebody spilled a bunch of pickup sticks on the ground, and they instantly were able to count how many there were. And it was 111 of them. And then one guy said X, the other guy said the same number X, and then the other guy said X again. What is that number X, which three times that equals 111? <laughs> Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been Planet Watch for another week with your hosts, Rachel Ann Goodman and, and Joe, Joe Jordan. Jordan. Keep an eye on the sky. And you can catch our podcast at planetwatchradio.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.